0: We might ask again, as we have through this series in the book of Leviticus, who determines the relevance of a sermon? Who determines the relevance of a sermon? We're programmed by our culture and by human nature itself to answer, I do. I listen to a sermon and then I decide if it is relevant to my life or not if I find it interesting, if I find the sermon helpful to fruitful living, then I judge the sermon to be relevant to me. Well, if contemporary Christians are free to render autonomous determinations about sermonic relevance, I imagine very few would judge any sermon from the book of Leviticus to be relevant to their lives. Relevance? Animal sacrifices, the clothing of an obsolete priesthood, stipulations for a tent of worship that's long been lost, skin diseases, mildew in homes, regulations for slavery, Strange Rituals Regarding Bodily Fluids. This is Leviticus. and We get it. We understand the concern. But Eden Baptist Church, as we return again to the book of Leviticus, we do so with the conviction that it is God who determines what is relevant for us. He is the one who speaks to that end. And we are coming to see that as a vital part of the God-breathed, inerrant Scriptures, the book of Leviticus steers us and steers our worldview down very specific paths of ultimate relevance. We need this book. We need this book today. God employs the drama of Israel's ritual worship to press us to see God a certain way. To see humanity a certain way. To embrace a certain worldview, and to seek God's face a certain way. In the ritual system that God prescribes to ancient Israel, a system by which they can approach Him, God painstakingly proves to us the only way for sinners to commune with God. There is profound and life-giving relevance in this drama if we will permit God to define relevance for us. And indeed, we must. It is the only safe way. So, we came as we started this series, to the end of the book of Exodus. Remembering that the book ends with God's glorious presence filling the tabernacle there at the end of that book. But the question is left ringing in our ears. It just stands there before us. How can this place where God now dwells become the place of meeting with Him? That question is not answered by the book of Exodus and it merges right into then the book of Leviticus which answers it in painstaking detail. How can we meet with God as sinners? It starts right away with sacrifice. Sacrifice and moves then, and we've made our way through the book to this place, secondly, of priesthood, sacrifice. An animal is substituted in the place of the sinner who deserves to die, but the animal, chosen carefully, is killed instead of the sinner so as to atone for sin before a holy God. And a priesthood, Secondly, is necessary to help us navigate how to approach God in this sacrificial system and live to tell about it, that we not step over some boundary that we don't understand, that we fail to sacrifice the animal properly. A priesthood mediates between the sinner and God. This all we learn. In Leviticus chapter 6 and 7, God prescribes specific animal sacrifices that the priests are to offer for the cleansing of God's people. But if you remember, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Leviticus, but if you remember back to chapter 7, there's nothing actually offered. These are It's a point of discussion. These are the sacrifices, but there's not actually a sacrifice that's given. We come now to chapter 8, and I invite you there to Leviticus chapter 8, to the consecration of the priests who are designated by God to help Israel offer those sacrifices in careful compliance with God's law. We'll consider the relevance of the drama that plays out here in chapters 8 and 9 along the way. But we start here in chapter 8 with the consecration of Israel's priest to the Lord's service. The consecration of the priest now takes place here in chapter 8. It starts with collecting and assembling as the pieces are brought together here in verse 1 of Leviticus 8. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him and the garments and the anointing oil and the bull of the sin offering and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread, get all these things together, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So these ritual artifacts are brought together and the service of priestly consecration begins by getting them together and it will be explained, in fact, it is has been explained in Exodus 29. You remember again that, that unique point, I'll just hit on it lightly again, but the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, were meant to be read together. So you get all of the information in Exodus 29 But now it comes back to that point, and here they actually follow through. So Moses is here called to execute the instructions of Exodus 29, consecrating the priests so that they may mediate between God and Israel, helping them fulfill the ritual requirements of approaching God. His glory has descended to this tabernacle. How do we approach Him? Now this priesthood with sacrifice is consecrated. What does Moses do in light of God's command? Verses 1-3, through verse 4, his response, Moses did as the Lord commanded him. And the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The congregation, not meaning the several million Israelites at this small tabernacle, but rather the elders representing Israel are there assembled around the tent. This is an artist's depiction, obviously, but just giving us a sense of Israel out there around Mount Sinai, assembled around the tent, and now the elders representing them, gathering at the entrance, probably to the the, the outside uh, tent. Now, you notice here this simple phrase, which can miss us. Moses did as the Lord commanded him. Watch as we work through these chapters how often that's repeated. And what we find here is a principle of interpretation of repetition, verbal repetition signaling significance. There's not bolded text. There's not even spaces in the Hebrew Bible between words. There's not italics. There's not parentheses. There's none of those things available to Moses. One way that the Hebrew Bible draws our attention to significance is to repeat. Maybe working your way through Exodus, you ran into this once upon a time and you saw all of the instructions about the tabernacle, all of its furniture, all of its fences and its coverings, and all of the stuff is explained to you in the text of Exodus. God commands these things to be brought together. What comes next in the text? And Moses did all of that. But it doesn't just say Moses obeyed, it says it goes through all of the same things again. And it seems so repetitive to us, but what the author is doing, what Moses is doing here is saying, get this, this is important. And the fact that Moses obeys God is extremely important contextually, chronologically, but is also drawn in the text. I'll say little more on that, but notice it as we go through. He obeys the Lord, assembles the people and these artifacts. Now in verses 5 through 13, we find the ritual consecration of Aaron, of Aaron's sons, and the tent of meeting itself. Verse 5, Moses obeys, says to the congregation, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. Verse 6, Aaron and his sons are washed. Moses brings Aaron and his sons, washes them with water. This is symbolic of spiritual cleansing. The priests who are here going to mediate between a sinful people and a holy God themselves must be cleansed. And they are cleansed first with a ritual bath. Then they are clothed with holy vestments. Verse 7. And And he put the coat on him. Moses puts the coat on Aaron. And by the way, coat is an unfortunate translation. It's a tunic, a linen undergarment that would be robe-like, but would be against the skin. So something of an undergarment, a comfortable garment. He puts that on, then ties the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put an ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. There's a breastplate of sorts that is there. And he placed the breastpiece on him over this. And in the breastpiece, he put the urim and the thumim. And he set the turban on his head. And on the turban in front, he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as Lord commanded Moses. Now, these aren't photographs, of course, but we have here maybe something of what it may have looked like, a turban here on this graphic, and you see the plate, Kadosh La Yahweh, that is holy to the Lord. Reading from right to left, holy to the Lord. If there was any question, this priest is dedicated to, to Yahweh, to the Lord. He is set aside in his service to the Lord. The robe, think not bathrobe, but poncho type, a hole in it just thrown over the shoulders. And this ephod with the breast piece there on the, on the chest, bearing the twelve tribes of Israel in representative form in this, it, with these jewels on the, on the chest of the high priest. Somewhere in there is stored in some way, probably in some type of a pouch, the Urim and the thumim. What on earth is that? We really don't know. It means, literally, the lights and perfections. But since no one knows what that means, they just use the Hebrew word Urim and thumim, both plural nouns. We can no longer identify exactly what they were, but somehow it functioned to determine the will of God. Something perhaps like dice. Do you want us to go here? And the answer would come back, yes. Do you want us to bring this? And the answer would come back, no. That type of thing. This was all lost with the exile. We don't any longer know what is there and perhaps that's good lest we try to copy it. Uh, Whatever it is, the priest is thus fitted to minister to the Israelites. Now let's stop for a moment and just think of uniforms, uniforms in our own culture. They emphasize what? They, they emphasize the office. They emphasize the function of the one who is so dressed. Really, uniforms downplay the individual. It's not about the individual so much as it is about the function that this individual has. So we have police who wear uniforms and soldiers who wear uniforms. They may have their name on a tag on their chest, but really it's about identifying the job that they do, the function that they have. We might take a Buddhist monk, and even we who don't see many of them around, we can identify them quickly. That's a Buddhist monk, just by the dress that they have, the uniform. There are some jobs that require uniforms by way of protection. Certainly that's true with soldiers and the uniforms that they wear and police officers. But there are some who have a job, in fact some in this congregation that have a job, you wear a hazmat suit, you wear some type of suit in your work that protects you from the dangerous elements that are coming outside a contaminated environment of some sort. But we could contrast that on the opposite end with manufacturers of computer hardware. Workers don, in some cases, white suits, head to toe, feet wrapped. They're completely covered in it to protect. And then they walk into a vacuum chamber where everything's sucked off of them, all the dirt that could possibly be there, and they go into their environment not to be protected from the contaminated environment, but to protect the environment from them. Because a loose hair, a fleck of skin, a piece of dirt off of their body can corrupt what is being manufactured there. It's so precise. It has to be so clean. Does that make sense? That, in a sense, is what the priesthood is wearing here. It's not really, not truly, but in a figurative sense, they are wearing these robes to protect God from them. They will corrupt his presence. And so he gives them this uniform to identify the work that they have to do as priests. They are God's ministers, but there is, in a sense,. A knowledge for us here that God is protected from the sin. God requires certain preparations to protect His utter holiness from the contamination of sinners. So the one who comes into the presence of God must be dressed in this unique way and the rest of Israel is not even permitted in the area. They are cordoned off because of their sin. Christians, in light of this, I mean, we're learning, we're seeing the relevance of this. Christians who trumpet the idea that God accepts all people unconditionally have not sufficiently been influenced by the message of Leviticus this careful preparation and dress to enter into the presence of God. He does not unconditionally accept us. The purification rituals are necessary to approach God and to, in a sense, preserve Him from the contamination of people. Even the tabernacle must be anointed. Verse 10, Moses took the anointing oil, this has been described earlier in the book of Exodus and how it was made, and that it was holy, and that it smelled really good, and that you weren't to do anything to try to copy it, and all of that is in the book of Exodus. So he takes this anointing oil, which we've learned about earlier, and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. That's a key point. They're being consecrated. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. So symbolically, the the tabernacle where God is worshipped is consecrated for this use and for this approach on the part of the priest's. And then Aaron himself is anointed, verse 12, and he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. The pungent oil runs down Aaron's head and drips into his beard, the psalmist tells us. The man is being consecrated. This man is being consecrated. That is amazing. Think of it in context. We put this together chronologically as well as we can structure it. Exodus 29 is first. Get the priest ready this way. This is the ritual. This is the consecration that will allow the priesthood into my presence. You know what comes next chronologically? Exodus 32. This man, Aaron, Aaron, Offers a, creates a false god and offers false worship to this god on his own initiative, on his own terms, without anything to do with the true Lord. And so the question that arises from the text is, what will God do with this man? What will he do with this priest who has led Israel away? And if not... Purposefully leading them in that direction at first. He certainly was the one who put their plan into motion. As he created that golden calf and worshipped God here in his mercy. What comes next is Leviticus 8. So these are words that drip with the mercy of God. Moses brought put oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. The man who had committed egregious sin against God in the orgy of Exodus 32 now emits the aroma of God's grace. How humbled Aaron must have been as he stood dripping with the mercies of a holy God. Likewise, his sons are clothed, verse 13, and Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses, not quite as elaborate in their dress, but again identifying them as God's priests and Exodus twenty-nine, twenty-nine, indicating that they too were anointed with oil. A bull now is offered in verse 14. Now we come to actual sacrifice in consecration of these priests. Verse 14, Then he brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering. And he killed it, and Moses took the blood. I think he there is Aaron, not Moses. Aaron killed it, and Moses took the blood and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it and purified the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all of the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat, and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull and its skin and its flesh and its dung he burned up with fire outside the camp as the Lord commanded Moses." Not doing this on his own, but following the Lord's initiative and the Lord's instructions, he consecrates the priesthood through sacrifice. Whose hands are going on the offering? It's Aaron's hands. It's the Aaronic priesthood who is now identifying with this animal of sacrifice. That was what typically the people would be doing. But here Aaron and the priests are doing it. And then verse 18, he presented the, lamb, the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. And he, Aaron, killed it, and Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burned the head and the pieces and the fat. He washed the entrails and the legs with water, and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma of food offering for the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. Completely consumed in absolute dedication. Put yourself in the time frame. Think of the length. Think of the blood. Think of the smells. Think of all of the poignancy of the ceremony. That for Aaron and his sons. Then, verse 15, I'm sorry. My eyes switched to the next chapter. Let me find my place again. The first ram is offered in sacrifice through verse 21. Now the second ram and grain offering follow in verse 22. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. The part for the whole in this ritual. Then, verse 24, he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the loaves of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet, and Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. Then he took the fat and the fat tail and all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and the right thigh, and out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread and oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of fat on the right thigh. And he put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons, and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. So it goes in their hands, they lift it to God, they wave it as a sign of receiving it from the Lord. But then an amazing thing happens in this consecration ceremony. Verse 28, Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord, a food offering to Him. And Moses, verse 29, took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination as the Lord commanded Moses. Amazing things going on here. We don't want to sit on it long. But Aaron and his sons are being treated like the people. They are taking the place of any other Israelite putting their hand on these offerings and even though in the future what they wave will become theirs, on this occasion it is consumed in the fire to say we give all to God. It's all His. We are all His. Complete sacrifice. Moses, on the other hand, there's no one else to mediate between the priests and God. And so God chooses Moses for this task and he fulfills the function of the priest. Interestingly, burning what they would have eaten, half of it, and eating the other half himself, fulfilling the priestly role according to God's plan. Now, the thumb, the toe, the ear, what's that about? It's a new ritual, a consecration ritual. We see it again in other places, but it's rare. The symbolism seems to say that the priest was to devote himself to hearing and obeying God's word. The part for the whole, the ear is touched, speaking of the hearing. He's to hear God's word. His thumb, a part for the whole, his hands are to be found devotedly carrying out God's will indeed and He was to have feet anxious to walk in the ways of the Lord. It's total consecration to God's will. In verses 27 and 28, we have, and 29, we have this matter of who's eating what, and again, the point of consecration. Then, verse 30, we come to the garments of Aaron and his sons. And these garments are also anointed you get the picture not, there's nothing here that's not being anointed it's not being consecrated in this ritual system verse 30 then moses took some of the anointing oil and the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on aaron and his garments and also on the sons and his sons garments so he consecrated aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons garments with him Oil and the blood in combination here indicating the proximity of the priesthood, the oil of anointing, and the sacrificial system with the blood. And then the consecration finalizes with the priests in verse 31. Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and there eat it, and the bread that is in the basket of ordination offerings, as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it, And what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn up with fire. And you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed, for it will take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. It seems to be then that for seven days these sacrifices are offered again. And they remain at the entrance, verse 35, of the tent of meeting, and you will remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged so that you do not die, for so I have been commanded, says Moses. Whether they left to relieve themselves, perhaps even left to sleep, that's not necessarily saying they had to sleep right inside the fence. But they're not going anywhere for seven days of consecration. Verse 36, And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded Moses. God commands His people obey. Well, as I've said before, that was a half hour. That's seven days of their life. Just to consecrate them for this service. We come then in chapter 9 to the inauguration of the ritual service by Israel's priests. So we've looked at the consecration of Israel's priests to the Lord's service and now the inauguration of that ritual service by the priests. There is again an assembly, verse 9, paralleling very much chapter 8. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, take for yourself a bull a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. Verse 3, And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish for a burnt offering and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. Now what stands out to you there? a couple of things that certainly would have stood out to them after seven days of all of these sacrifices and all of this consecration Moses calls Aaron and says we're going to sacrifice some more the other thing that clearly stands out is this phrase at the end of verse 4 that the Lord will appear to you the Lord will appear to you it's working the tent of meeting is a place where a meeting is actually going to happen So God instructs Moses in chapter 8. He obeys by consecrating Aaron and his sons as priests. Now in chapter 9, Moses instructs Aaron to offer various types of sacrifices for the people. So on this eighth day, that is, after the seven days of consecration, he offers this sacrifice. We notice in verse 2 the emphasis also on the fact that he is to take For himself a bull calf for a sin offering and a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And he is to do this for himself. Take for yourself. For today the Lord will appear to you. Here again is that key theme of God dwelling with his people. So apparently the glory cloud that came in Exodus 40 has lifted off again. And God's presence is promised then to return as a sign that God approved of Israel's preparedness to meet with Him. God in His holiness, sinners in their sin, coming through this ritual process and the Lord appearing. This will happen. Verse 5, And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. There it is again. The Lord will appear. That the glory of the Lord will appear through your obedience. Verse 7, Then Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them. Them as the Lord has commanded so Aaron offers the sacrifices verse 8 Aaron drew near to the altar and he killed the calf of the sin offering which was for whom for himself And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him and he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering he burned on the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the skin is burned up and the fire outside the camp. He burned up these outside the camp according to the ritual. So for himself, a sacrifice is offered. Then, burnt offerings for Aaron's sons. Verse 12, and he killed the burnt offering and Aaron's sons handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar and they handed the blood offering to him piece by piece and he burned them on the altar and he washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. So there's sacrifices piling up here on the altar that are being burned over time. Sin, burnt grain, and peace offerings now are offered for the people. Verse 15 He presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people and killed it and offered it as a sin offering like the first one. Verse 16. And he presented the burnt offering and he offered it according to the rule. And he presented the grain offering, took a handful of it and burned it on the altar besides the burnt offering of the morning. Then he killed the ox and the ram and the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. And Aaron's sons handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar. But the fat pieces of the ox and the ram and the fat tail and that which covers the entrails and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver they put the fat pieces on the breasts and he burned the fat pieces on the altar, but the breasts and the right thigh, Aaron, waved for a wave offering before the Lord as Moses commanded. And now the blessings. Consecration, inauguration of the sacrificial system, and now the blessing. Verse 22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. The Lord will come today. The tent of meeting will become the tent of meeting and the glory comes. As Moses and Aaron obey the Lord, as the sacrifices are offered, the presence of the Lord descends. In verse 24, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So the sacrifices are ascending in flame to God, rising before Him as a sweet-smelling aroma, as sinners are forgiven through atonement. This altar is the portal of fellowship with God for His people in this era. But now God comes down to His people. And the picture then is of the sacrifices smoldering on the altar. It would have taken a long time for them to burn up, but God in a flash consumes the sacrifices, indicating His approval. Why do the people fall down in response? If you don't know, you're not with me. (laughs) Say, get in the scene. You see these pieces fire uh, burning up on the altar and suddenly there is fire that comes out from the presence of God and consumes them in a flash. They hit the ground just like you'd hit the ground if you're walking outside here today and somebody started shooting a gun. It's fear. It's certainly also worship. And sometimes the word that's used here of them falling down is of joyful worship. Whatever the case here, whatever their terror or rejoicing, they are worshiping God. And that says so much. They hit the ground because they sense that the fire of God that consumes the sacrificial offerings in the place of sinners could just as well have consumed them. But seeing God's provision and now His protection, they worship. This is steering us a certain way. It's saying to us to remember and to understand that the whole point of the ritual system is worship, not the ritual. The key is not the ritual, but to dwell in the presence of God. This is where we must fear for some that take the Christian name. Gathering with them, seeing their church services, it's all about the ritual. And there's some high drama in the ritual, and there's some beauty in the ritual that can be found. But it's all about participating in the ritual and finding my comfort in that. The end is not the ritual. The end is the presence of God. And it can be high church ritual. It can be low church ritual. There are some that are in love with worship. We need to be in love with the God that we worship. And so, in the reading of Scripture, in the giving of our gifts, in the singing of our praises, they are not an end to themselves. It's God that we worship, it's He that we seek, His presence. Who are these people with faces on the ground? Who do you see them to be? Are they proud? Are they self-righteous? Do they have a clean moral record? This is the Exodus 32 people who not long before were worshiping a false god of their own making, but now they see in this consuming fire that breaks out from God the true and living God, and they worship Him. They are people who bring nothing to the equation. They are thoroughly humbled by grace. What does this drama teach us? I, I believe, I'm absolutely convinced, and it's the only reason really, well it's one, but a main reason for the courage to take us through this book. And it takes some courage it's not easy stuff for us in our setting. We're so removed from it. But I believe as we let this sink in, it steers our thoughts. It points us a certain way. It forces us to think along certain lines if we'll let it do so. What is the relevance to us? Let the truth of the drama soak in. And as it soaks in and as you grab what's really happening here, it's pointing us down certain lines that will not allow us to escape. I thought about putting these points on a slide for you, but I'm going to ask that you just don't even worry about the points. I'm going to enumerate them so that you know this ends somewhere before 2.30 this afternoon. We're going to move through it fairly quickly. So hold on, and this is just suggestive, there's so much more that can be said, but as we filter rightly this text before us today, here's the steerage that we're gaining. Think on it. Settle in it. Number one, human nature is thoroughly corrupted by sin. We are unqualified and incapable in our own strength to commune with a holy God. We are all contaminated by nature and by acts of moral rebellion against a holy God. We see that here. There's no way to soften it. This narrative before us will not permit it. The concept of God's, Unconditional acceptance of all people simply because they are made in His image. It's destroyed by Leviticus 8 and 9. They put on their uniforms not to be protected, but to protect the holiness of God. They're that corrupt. We are that corrupt. And churches who pride themselves on preaching relevant sermons and then fail to mention sin in light of this book are not very relevant at all. They may be entertaining, they may be interesting, but they're not relevant. Parents who are raising children in their home without moral law Everything is just suggestion. Everything is affirmation. I don't know that they've been influenced by the text we've stood in today. I don't think our task is to belittle and depress children with their sinfulness by any means. Nor is it to constantly be speaking and leading and directing them in a way that never brings to their attention, I'm a sinner. What will such children ever sense with respect to their need for grace? I don't need grace if I don't realize I'm a sinner. We have generations of children growing up that are never brought to see that they are separated by their sin from a holy God. This steers us this way. To say sin is serious. It's not to be dismissed. It's not a small thing. Think of the ritual just to prepare sinners to stand in the presence of God through a representative. Secondly, God is a holy God who does not tolerate sin and who must display the glory of His name by judging sin. There's no other way. We can't look at this text and say, well, it could have been written a different way. That was one person's opinion. This isn't anybody's opinion. This is God's nature. Thirdly, so there's only one way then, only one way to stand before a holy God. God's fire of judgment against sin must consume a sacrifice that dies in your place or it'll consume you. There's no other option here. This text steers us down to that line. Number four, in his love and mercy, God provides a way for sinners to be forgiven and to commune with Him by means of a substitutionary sacrifice administered by a consecrated priesthood. This we're being steered to understand. To see in no uncertain terms the necessity of this sacrifice in our place and of a consecrated priesthood to present us to God. Number five, the way of access to God is initiated and designed by God and is effectual only on His terms. Moses and Aaron and the priests were not commended for their moral rectitude. They are commended for careful obedience to God's directives. This is the only way of blessing. Not inventing things ourselves. Not being good boys and girls on our terms. The only way forward is to hear the voice of the Lord. We're steered that way. We're pressed down those lines. Number five, this ritual drama that painstakingly brings sinners into the presence of God is temporary and incomplete. Pointing us inexorably to Jesus Christ, the high priest of a superior order who fulfilled the sacrificial system. We see this in the text. It's not explicit. Where do we see it? We see it in sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And this is what the author of Hebrews so clearly sees, draws our attention to it, even beginning in chapter 5 and carrying on through several chapters. This author sees this connection. He starts that section with Christ the great high priest in 4.14 and in chapter 5 says, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. You don't go rushing into the presence of God. And these sacrifices are offered for the sin of the priest as well. So, also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. Even Jesus didn't go rushing into that on his own. But he was appointed. This is what we're learning in Leviticus God appoints. He appoints his priests. It's not whoever's the best, whoever has the most money, whoever has the most influence. God appoints them. Even the Son was appointed. saying, you are my son, today I have begotten you, as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What we're seeing then is in the incompleteness of the system. There are sinful priests. They cannot fully complete this function because they themselves are sinful. And the sacrifices are themselves incomplete because they must be offered again and again. But all of this saying, it it, it creates a thirst for a priesthood that operates in perfection. It creates a thirst for a final sacrifice that fulfills all sacrifices. That thirst is there as we see the Israelites offering animal after animal day after day. And indeed, then points us to the great high priest, Jesus Christ. He has, says the author of Hebrews in chapter 7, as we read earlier, no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. This he did once for all. All of this pointing us to this priest. For since the law, chapter 10, has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, and indeed every day, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. It wouldn't have to keep going on if there wasn't continual sin and continual guilt. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But this priest, Jesus Christ, came to do the will of God, chapter 10 and to be that final sacrifice. I know people entering here say, that this sacrificial system, you, you say it proves Christ's priesthood. It proves Christ as the final sacrifice. But there were sacrifices going on by all kinds of other religions all around Israel. They're just doing what everybody around them is doing, offering sacrifice. That's a yes and a no. Yes, on the one hand, of course. The very first people on the planet were introduced to sacrifice by God. Everyone born from those two people and from that first family, which we see offering as early as Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel. Of course, the knowledge of sacrifice was passed on to others, and of course, in their sinfulness, the concept would be corrupted. That's to be understood. But there's another sense in which that's not true at all. No system like this system made sacrifice such a dominant part of life. No system had so many layers of ritual consecration to a holy God. You appeased the gods of the nations. This God you're not appeasing, this God is welcoming you in through sacrifice in his pristine holiness. That is unique. And so we are taught this is the only way forward. But this system as we see it here in Leviticus is incomplete, intending to point us to Jesus as the final priest and the final sacrifice who fulfills all of this system perfectly. Let me say just with one last point, the goal of God's provision of salvation then in Christ is worship, not ritual. This guides us that way. When our great high priest delivers us from the penalty and the bondage of sin, we respond with holy lies in communion with Him. So He's steering us in a certain way of understanding. We might say it this way. One, God initiates the free gift of atonement. God initiates the free gift of atonement according to His plan. Then we obey in repentant faith. He acts, we respond in obedient faith, and then thirdly, God rewards us with the fellowship of His presence and with His blessings, which will come later in the book of Leviticus. But here, indeed, the fellowship of His presence. That's how we relate to God, just that way. He initiates, He atones for sin. We then respond in repentant faith, and in the end, are rewarded in that obedience. Not because we are obedient, but one unto the path of obedience by the sacrifice of Christ, we are called to a life of obedience that is rewarded ultimately with the blessing of God. He's got us all right there. Right here in these chapters, He's steering us to house justification, sanctification, and glorification work. And we don't even get it. In fact, we look at Leviticus 8 and 9 and go, that has got nothing to do with me. It's got everything to do with us. He's pointing us where we need to go. And all religions in this world outside of Christ go in the opposite direction. It's not justification, sanctification, glorification. It's always sanctification first. I get myself holy. I make myself pleasing to God. And then He will justify me because I'm a pretty good person. In one way or another, the religions of this world, the false religions of this world, are looking at it in that order. I do. J.D. Crowley said, I do, and then I get. But in God's economy, as we are steered to see here, we get first, and then we do. We act in obedience on what He has initiated. The atoning sacrifice is His provision. And then in obedience to that, we walk in fellowship with the living God who pours out His blessing and His grace upon us. Get that order right. We're steered here, we're helped, obviously much more pointedly in the New Testament, but we've got to get that order right and I may well indeed speak to some here in this congregation today, you're striving to be a better person. You're striving to make yourself approved unto God by what you do. By who you believe you are becoming. That God would somehow look upon you and like what He sees. Let me assure you on the authority of this text before us and the entire Bible, God doesn't like what He sees and He's never going to. Not on those terms. What He sees is your law breaking. What He sees is your rebellion. What He sees is your pride in thinking that you can please this pristine God on your own terms. That's Exodus 32. That's the golden calf. That's the pride that separates us from God. Get that. But also get this. In his mercy he reaches out to sinners and chooses to love us. He loves us with this grace that he gives his son to die in our place, to bear the penalty of our sin as the Lamb of God, to die to pay the price that we should pay. And he gives him life again that we may then walk in his presence and fellowship with him. So that we're not good and then thereby please God. But we receive his mercy and then begin to live for his honor. When we get this right, we are humbled. And with the people here, we fall on our faces, so to speak, in humility and in thanksgiving that God has done it. And when He clothes you in the righteous robes of Christ, when He gives to you Jesus' standing, Jesus' righteousness, the sinless Lamb of God, then we enter into His presence and we fellowship for all eternity. Not because we're sinless. Not because we're even good but because by the sacrifice in our place, we are eternally forgiven. Get that right. Leviticus is helping us there. The New Testament points us there. Get it right. Your eternity is at stake in this truth. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, We pause in this moment to thank you for what you've accomplished for us in Christ. We pause humbled, repentant, and pleading in behalf of those who have not received that grace through faith. Answer the cry of our heart for them and for us. May we worship in spirit and in truth. Through Jesus we pray.